You are listening to us, Unscripted Stories, brought to you by Northwestern University's Multicultural Student Affairs. We are recording at the traditional homelands of the people of the Council of Three Fires, the Ojibwe, Potawatomi, and Adawa, as well as the Menominee, Miami, and Ho-Chunk Nations. Welcome everyone, my name is Saeed and today we are joined by Upasna Bharath and Imani Sumbi who will share a story about identifying as biracial and a people. Hi everyone, thank you for listening in on our third episode for the Apita Heritage Month series. I'm Upasna Bharath, my pronouns are she, her, and hers, and I'm a graduate assistant with MSA. My name is Imani Sumbi. I am a second year journalism student at Northwestern. I'm also minoring in Asian American studies and I use she, her pronouns. Awesome. So I, Said already said what our conversation is going to be about today, but I know that you have a story to tell us and I was hoping that we could spend some time listening to what that is. Absolutely. So, I am biracial. My dad is Black slash African American, and my mom is Pacific Islander. More specifically, she is Guamanian, and even more specifically, she is Chamorro. So there was this children's picture book that she used to read to me. It's called Marina, and it's this Guamanian authored story about an island girl named Serena who lives with her mom. And the beginning is actually, now that I think of it, kind of Moana-ish. So this girl, Serena, absolutely loves the ocean. She's constantly drawn to it whenever she's supposed to be doing her chores. She's like getting distracted and going swimming or thinking about going swimming. Her mom is very frustrated by this because she's never focused on her chores and she's always in the water. So one day, um, Serena's mom asked her to go and do laundry, basically washed her clothes in the river, and then to be back home by noon. And so, of course, the water calls to Serena, and she can't help going swimming. And she swims for so long that she loses track of time and doesn't realize that it's noon and she's not back home. And when she doesn't return by noon, her mom knows immediately that she has yet again neglected her chores. And so, in like a fit of rage, her mom says, you know, if that girl loves to swim so much, she may as well become a fish. And with those words, her mom accidentally transforms Serena into a fish. She curses her. Um, so her godmother, Serena's godmother, overhears this. And it's kind of established, like in the beginning of the book, that Serena is particularly fond of her godmother, more so probably than her mom. And so when the godmother hears the curse, she tries to stop it. She says something like, Serena belongs to me too, and my half of her will always be a girl. I want her heart, which is mine, to stay the way it always has. And so instead of transforming into a fish, Serena becomes a mermaid, half fish and half girl. She has mixed feelings about this transformation. You know, obviously she, has her dream of finally being able to be free and be in the water all the time and be in the ocean where she loves to be. But she's also, of course, saddened that she can never return to land. And she wonders whether her mother 
can love her as a mermaid, can love her when she's half fish and half human. And so at the end of the book, you see her like swimming away toward the ocean and she looks back and sees both her mother and godmother on the shore crying because they'll never see her again. And then she goes and dives into the ocean. That story is kind of sad. It's super sad. It's a very melancholy, somber story. So did you, when you, like, as you're telling us this story, do you remember it? And like, did you carry it with you? Or was it a story that your mother reminded you of? Yes, it's definitely something she reminded me about. But as soon as she did, I remembered all the details. She told it to me several times as a child. Wow, that's amazing. I'm sort of wondering, though, do you ever recall, and it's okay if not, but like, did you ever recall like being cognizant of the connection between this story and your identity as a child? Or is that something you're more cognizant about? now? Yeah, I don't think I was privy to that as a child. I think as a kid, it was just this cool story about a mermaid. Um, But now kind of looking back on it, I see that it's a pretty good working metaphor for what it's like to be biracial. It resonates me with me now as this story about someone who's essentially caught between two worlds. So story or not, was there ever a point in your childhood where you felt especially caught between two worlds, where you your biracial identity was especially prominent and you sort of had this aha moment of like, oh my gosh, this is who I am. This is what I'm dealing with. You know, a lot of people, I, I like a lot of people don't become really cognizant about their discrimination or what, you know, how they're being discriminated against until a certain point in their life. And I'm wondering if you remember what that point was for you. Yeah, that's a good question. So I was definitely aware of my biracial identity as a kid. Like, I think my earliest conception of race was that dad was chocolate and I was peanut butter and mom was clear. I don't know why mom was clear. I guess I knew she wasn't white, so I said clear. (laughs) Um, But for most of my life, because of the way that race is structured in this country, I kind of walked around as a black girl. It's the way that I present. It's probably the first thing that people see. And I'm also just probably more comfortable in that identity for the fact that black culture is far more prominent in like American media and entertainment and education and music than is Pacific Islander culture. And so it's just a world that I'm more familiar with in that way. And it's kind of like the default, I suppose. So I didn't really start confronting the biracial actively, you know, outside of just, you know, spending time with my family until I got to college. And I started going into these elitist spaces and really like talking that out and exploring that with other people. What does it feel like being in a PETA spaces for you? And also, what does it feel like when you are in mixed spaces? What do those mixed spaces look like? And where do you feel similarity and solidarity? And where do you feel like an outsider, I guess? Yeah, so when I first came to Northwestern, I engaged in both 
black and a penis spaces, and I still do. You know, I write for Blackboard Magazine. Uh, in my freshman year, I was part of the Black Mentorship Program. I was one of the mentees. And I was also attending like a PETA Book of the Quarters and Solidarities. And then this year I went to PETA 101 and I was on the Jubilation Planning Committee and all these other things. And surprisingly, I have always felt safer in a PETA spaces, I suppose. I don't know if safer is the right word, but more comfortable, despite the fact that I am almost always the only black person in the room and sometimes the only mixed person in the room. It's always felt like such a welcoming space where I can, you know, talk about being biracial, talk about this identity and people listen. Yeah, I can only recall attending one mixed race space so far on this campus. Um, and that was when we did like it was um it was an APETA program. It was a space specifically for mixed race APETA identifying people. And I had never been in a space like that before. Typically, I always have to choose one or the other. I have to choose being a black space or being in a PETA space. And this was the first time where I got to be in a space with other mixed race people. And that was definitely special for me, getting to have that solidarity. For the first time in that mixed race space, I was able to like empathize with other people about similar experiences of like being exoticized or constantly having people ask, what are you? Or guessing wrong as to what race you are or people not recognizing that your parents are your parents or people saying, I love mixed race babies or especially when you're an interracial couple, you would have such cute kids, which is such an annoying thing. But yeah, things like that. I was wondering if you could elaborate more or talk a little bit about how mixed race folks who, um, I guess, like, are either halfway or a quarter or just, like, have a part of their identity that is white, how that experience might be different from your experience when it comes to interacting with other mixed folks, but also interacting with um, other people of color, and then also um, white people, too? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I do feel that generally, even within conversations about mixed race folks, um, people who have a white identity are usually a little bit more centered. When people think mixed race, the first thing they usually think of is like a combination between white and non-white, as opposed to a combination of two non-white identities. At the same time though, like I can't imagine what kind of internal conflict that must be, you know, to have a part of your identity that's dominant and a part of your identity that's targeted in society. Like, I don't know, do you experience both white privilege and the marginalized oppression of being a person of color? Like what is that like? I can't even I can't even imagine. I feel like that would cause such inner turmoil for me. <laughs> Um, I can actually speak to that a little bit because um, I have um, like a white parent and a non-white parent um, so, but and so like in a lot of social situations like I'm not sure if people are reading me as white or as not white because I know that I'm white passing in a lot of contexts but I also know that like people who 
are better able at identifying Middle Eastern features, like can tell that I'm Middle Eastern. So it's really hard to like, I wouldn't say that it's really hard, but it's like, it is something that kind of causes me anxiety though. Or it definitely used to cause me a lot more anxiety about like how people are reading me in social situations. And I had to really um, become comfortable with my own identities for myself and like how I want to navigate. It used to cause me some anxiety about like how people are reading me in social situations like because there is such a difference between being read as white and especially when i'm in poc spaces i like really had to become much more comfortable with my like how i identify myself and like how secure i feel in my own experiences um and then kind of leave it up to other people and like you can decide like basically just ha i had to not um care about how other people are reading me and just be sure about like how i experience my own self people are going to read me differently no matter what and so like i just have to be secure in how i identify in my own experiences um and like that has made me a lot more comfortable in navigating different social situations um but like people will act different depending on how they read you um and so like i feel like what you were saying about like experiencing both white privilege and some oppressed aspects of identity is like very real. So like if I, especially when I am read is white in, in public spaces, like, I mean, regardless, I am very fair skinned. So like I have privilege in that way, regardless. Um, so like, I do have a lot of privilege in navigating public space. Um, but then there's also like, I was raised by my like very large immigrant and brown family. Um, and so, like, there are a lot of aspects of my experience that do not, ex like, that my, like, my white privilege does not really extend to. Yeah, no, I'm glad that you mentioned, you know, the idea of having to navigate your own identity and deciding for yourself the way that you want to identify in certain spaces. It reminded me of something else that I learned in, like, the mixed race appeal space, which is that, you know, I and all mixed race people have the right to identify different ways at different times in different circumstances. Yeah, I agree with that. I think people see that as like taking advantage in some way or like manipulating people in some way. But I also think like, which like, I feel like that is possible to do and that could be true in some circumstances. But I also think that different aspects of identity are salient at different moments and in different situations. It's like that feels really relevant. That honestly makes me think about my 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 brother. So my brother is half white, half Indian. Um, and I remember growing up, like he would just talk about how he could identify however he wanted. And like because of my own ignorance and like lack of, I guess, wanting to empathize with him. Also, because he's, like, a straight cis man, like, that was another identity that, like, was is salient for him. Like, I was just, like, you are just finding ways to, like, wield more power and privilege whenever it suits you. Um, but then I realized, like, oh, my God, that's none of my business. <laughs> I was just, like, mm, you know, it's none of my business. It's, and I don't know what it's like to be mixed, so I can't, like, be like oh Jacob you shouldn't be doing it like that like how dare you identify in this way like that's none of my business um I don't know what it's like to what Imani said as holding an oppressed identity and then holding exactly 
the opposite. Um, I just, now I have just so much more empathy for him and I try to give him way more credit because he deserves it. But I'm sort of wondering if you could like backtrack a little bit about, I just want to know more about you, Imani. I, what, where did you grow up and what was high school like? And what do you think were your most salient identities in high school? Yes, so I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California, and I feel very fortunate to have always gone to schools that are pretty fairly diverse, I would say, like, pretty much in line with, like, national demographics. You know, there's always, you know, about half white, but then, like, a significant proportion of Black, Hispanic, and Asian people as well. In high school, I went to, I went to a performing arts high school and I played classical flute. And in arts high schools, everybody is weird <laughs> and everybody's um, pretty liberal and pretty accepting of almost every identity, at least on the face of it, at least on a surface level. Well, I suppose in a classical music setting where most of my fellow musicians in orchestra or in chamber music are white and Asian, I feel like in that particular space, I felt more of a need to emphasize my blackness. Like here I am being a black flute player where there's only like two other black people in this room. So that's what I'm gonna represent here. Um, I wanna, I kinda wanna hear more about how your experience in high school um, differs to your experience at Northwestern when it comes to your identity. And if you could also talk about, um, I know you talked about the Solidarity Mixed APIDA space, which I think like it just delights me. I know Christine would be just so happy to hear you reference that. Um, but yeah, what's it like being mixed and being at Northwestern? Um, how do you gain a sense of community and where do you see improvement being needed? In a lot of the ways, it's the same. I came to Northwestern being mixed race, but presenting black and kind of, um, being grab gravitating towards black spaces at first. Um, and then once I discovered this really wonderful APIDA community and not just like in MSA, but also in the Asian American Studies Department, that's when it all started to kind of unravel for me. And I really got to explore that side of myself. And it came to this point where I was choosing between two minors. Um, I'm in this I'm going for this like master's program in the dill, which means that I don't have the time to do more than one minor. So I had to choose between African American studies and Asian American studies. And fall of last year, I took both intro to AFAM and intro to Asian American studies. And I ultimately went with Asian American studies because, or not only because, I felt like it was a part of myself that was unexplored and I wanted to take this opportunity to go deeper into, but also because Asian American studies really isn't just about Asian Americans. It's about the entire racial system in this country and in the world. And it, it recognizes that every person in this country, regardless of their race, is implicated in this racial caste system and it takes them all into account. How do you think your identity is going to play into um, your work life? Um, I, I, you want to get into journalism, correct? 
So how do you think your identity is going to show up in the workplace as a journalist? What type of stories are you interested in as well? I know that's like three questions. Yeah, I do think about that sometimes because uh, despite the fact that I am biracial, both my first and last and middle name come from my father's side of the family. I have a Swahili first and last name that comes off very African sounding, I think. Um, And so I do sometimes think about the way that will impact, for example, how people see my resume. You know, I've read those studies about how black sounding names are often, you know, passed over more often for callbacks than white sounding names. And I actually talked to my mom about this recently. And I asked her, like, well, first, why don't I have like both black and a Pete and um, Guamanian names in my name? And also, why is it that I have like this African first name when both you and dad have these Christian English first names? And her answer to that question was, you know, in the year 2000, when you were born, I thought that the world was becoming a better place where people like you were going to be more accepted. And, you know, I know that my parents, uh, my mom said, I know that my parents, your grandparents, gave us Christian names because they knew the world wasn't in that place yet. And I hoped that when you were born, the world was getting better. So I guess in a way, them naming me that was sort of an act of hope, which I think is really beautiful. And I also really love that they named me Imani, which means faith in Swahili. Yes, so the story.